Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall and I'm one of your co-hosts. Bruce Weiner is with me as well today as well as special guest, Keith Whitaker. So first, Keith, I just wanted to say welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be back with you. I was going to say, I should have said welcome back to the show. (laughs) You've been a guest before. I don't remember the date, but it was probably about two years ago. And we had a fabulous conversation then about this idea of how to develop wealth, how to have long-term wealth, that lasts through generations. And so I want to give a little bit of background on who Keith is for somebody who maybe has not heard that episode or has not been following us that long. And then we're going to just talk about today how to raise great kids, which is really the foundation for a long-term flourishing family and building long-term generational wealth. So Keith is an educator. He consults with leaders and rising generation members of enterprising families, but probably unpack some of those words in that definition in a moment. So Family Wealth Report named Keith the 2015 Outstanding Contributor to Wealth Management Thought Leadership. Keith's writings and commentary have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Financial Times. He's the co-author of Wealth and the Will of God, The Cycle of the Gift, The Voice of the Rising Generation, Family Trusts, Complete Family Wealth, and Wealth of Wisdom, the Top 50 Questions Wealthy Families Ask. Keith has served as managing director at Wells Fargo Family Wealth, an adjunct professor of management at Vanderbilt University, and an adjunct professor, adjunct assistant professor of philosophy at Boston College. Keith holds a PhD in social thought from the University of Chicago and a BA and MA in classics and philosophy from Boston University. So that's a lot of background that really builds this extreme intrigue for the work that you do. So today, Keith, um, we're just really going to unpack this idea of how do we really truly boots on the ground in real life, raise great kids and specifically for the idea that, look, if I'm building wealth, I'm creating a business and I'm moving the needle in my family. Now, I have to somehow if I'm going to create generational wealth, that needs to be done through good parenting. Because if I'm going to have wealth that lasts across generations, I can't just live my life well and hope the next generation does what it's supposed to do. I need to really be able to help the second generation pass on a value system and wisdom and knowledge and good stewardship to the third generation so that the third generation will continue on that cycle past me. And so there's this disconnect that happens when we just say, well, let's just train in financial matters. Let's just teach people how to run the books and do the accounting and balance the checkbook and invest well. Sometimes those skills do not actually accomplish the result that we want, which is long-term wealth and strong families. So Keith, this is a big conversation. We're going to go lots of places in this, but Can you first just kind of share what is your perspective on this whole idea of parenting well and why it's so needed? 
Sure, well, happy to, Rachel. And <clears throat> as you said, that's a really big question, um, the big lead up. So let me just take a sip of coffee here and <clears throat> wake up a little more and, uh, and try to begin to take it on. So I guess I'd start from you know, going back to the word that you use there of wealth. And first, just to be clear, and this is something we talked about in the uh, prior episode that we did together, that when I talk about wealth with families, I'm thinking not only of the financial wealth, you know, that your clients have built up through, you know, creating a business or executive leadership or the like, but also the non-financial or intangible wealth that the individuals and the family enjoy together. And that's something mm -hmm. that we at Wise Council Research call qualitative wealth. So to distinguish it from the quantitative wealth. And that qualitative wealth have many aspects. We don't have to go into it here. We talk about it in our book, Complete Family Wealth. But the real foundation for it is what we call human capital. Right? Mm -hmm. So the emotional and physical well-being of individual family members and also their resilience, their ability to manage the, the different difficulties and opportunities of the world, uh, setbacks and, and um, advantages, and <clears throat> also to learn and to be able to share their learning with each other. So when looking at a family, we look at not just the financial wealth or not even primarily the financial wealth, but really that larger quanti uh, qualitative wealth and particularly their human capital. And so when you come to the specific topic of parenting, we're thinking about how do parents help their children develop <clears throat> and grow over time their own human capital. So it's even though it's the context is family, the focus is on individuals. And that goes back to another principle that we have, you know, in, in our own thinking about family wealth is that really great families or healthy families are made up of great or healthy individuals, right? So sometimes, especially in the context of uh, large financial wealth, <clears throat> people have a tendency to focus on the family, having a hundred-year family plan, having a family constitution, talking about family values. All of those things are important, but they're, they really pale in comparison the importance of helping each individual in that family grow and be as healthy, as strong, as confident in him or herself as can be, because without that, you have a lot of words, you have a lot of documents or papers or plans, <clears throat> but those won't come to life uh, in the lives of the individuals. So parenting is about helping the individuals develop and grow their human capital. And then thinking specifically about parenting then, really the foundation it, we find is to first think about what is good parenting, right? With or without money. Right? Every family engages in parenting, whether or not they have significant financial wealth. And so what are some of the principles of good parenting, period, and work on in, in ensuring that those are in place? And then secondly, secondly, layering on the aspects of parenting amid wealth. So what does financial wealth bring that are kind of special needs or special capacities or considerations? to the task of parenting. So those are the ways that we approach thinking about that task. And we can talk about each of those uh, as we go along here. Principles of good parenting simply, and then parenting amid wealth. I love how much that you shared in there. Bruce, did you have something you wanted to say? I didn't want to talk but, over you. Yeah, that's uh, so Keith, first of all, um, 
you know, I don't know if you know this, many of our listeners do, but I was in education uh, for 17 years and I was actually at a private Benedictine school in St. Louis who I would refer to uh, was run by uh, monks who have taken a vow of poverty, but to this day, like right now, it's $26,000 to send your seventh grader to that particular school. So it's not, they do a really good job of financial assistance and getting a really diverse group, economic group. But the bottom line is a lot of people that ha- uh, attend to school have a lot of wealth. And so I, I witnessed this and, and we frankly would call it more new wealth or, uh, than old wealth because the school was founded in 1955 compared to many of the schools that were founded uh, at the turn of the century in St. Louis. And so the teachers would often refer to, you know, uh, the children and how they were being raised with this new money. And you could actually see some characteristics that were happening at the time. And one of the biggest characteristics, and once again, this seems obvious, I think, to a lot of people, but was just a lack of communication on basic things. And the basic things I w- would told, like, uh, you know, how to, how to act in a, in a peer group, how to act in, under peer pressure, how to act uh, around adults, you know, so on and so forth. And to the point where I can remember, I can remember one particular father coming to me and saying, hey, I found a case of beer in my son's closet. Will you please talk to him about it and don't let him know that I found the case of beer? <laughs> and I mean, that is the kind of weird thinking that comes about in these situations where it's an impossible communication type of situation. And of course, I, I saw that family with a tremendous amount of problems along the way. So how does, how does my question here in my, after my setup is how does communication uh, factor in? And obviously I believe it does factor in, but what was the proper means of communication that you found throughout your career? Sure. So maybe it would help here if we start by making some distinct distinctions among children themselves and what I'm thinking of is particularly developmentally, right? So when we think about parenting, <clears throat> and clearly parenting a 25-year-old is going to be different than a 15-year-old and a 5-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. It's because there's different developmental stages in human life. And we can go into a lot of detail here, but maybe it would be most helpful for your listeners if we think about sort of three major uh, stages or classes. So first, young children, say up to the age 12. Then children in that middle period of, say, 12 to 21. That's a big span, and there's a lot that goes on there, but just taking that as a, as a big group, and then 21 and, and over. And why I'm thinking of that is that under 12, you know, you really still are looking at your parents as the major influence in your life, your development, your sense of security, and so forth. From 12 to 21, you're largely within uh, the structure of a school system and peer groups, right? And looking to school, friends, et cetera, as your major social connection and influence in, in your life and development. And then 21 and onward, you're often leaving the structure of school and having to find your way, whether that's in work, in career, in relationships, particularly uh, romantic relationships, thinking about you know, getting married, starting your own family, where you're still connected to your family of origin, most likely, but you really are facing 
you know, what we call the odyssey years of a, of a journey on your own to, to create your own life. So if we think about those three main stages of life, then the communication that's proper to those stages is, is really different for each one. So thinking about the younger children there, that's where um, parents really have to navigate between the communications that they offer verbally, and we think of like telling them, you know, eat your dinner, you know, or don't have two pieces of cake or, or the like, um, you know, enough screen time. The verbal communications, which are usually do's or don'ts, and then the nonverbal uh, communication that we give to our children. And that's through example, right? And so, especially for younger children, those nonverbal uh, behavioral forms of communication are the most important. So I'd say for, you know, like the families that you were dealing with, Bruce, uh, through the school, um, there's probably a fair amount of emphasis on verbal communication of saying like, this is what we do or we don't do in our family and such. But then did that line up with the behaviors, with the mm -hmm. actions, with the choices that the parents have? So again, if I step back and think about parenting amid wealth, especially for that youngest group of children, what I often say to parents is that at that age, you know, under 12 or so forth or very young ages, um, it's not about trying to teach your children certain skills or knowledge about money or, or money habits. I mean, you can, there are things that one can do at that age, but the most important thing is how you live. What is the example you set for your children, right? I mean, if the example is that you, you know, work hard and you party hard as well, well, children will pick up on that, right? And it wouldn't be terribly surprising to see a child with that example decide, you know, at 13 or something that may, maybe I could sneak a case of beer into my, you know, closet and see what that's like. So even though that might go against the verbal communication that the parent uh, thought that he or she was giving. So keeping in mind the example that you set at those younger ages is, is so important. And that's where sometimes as advisors, our work is to ask parents to just reflect upon yourself and your choices and the way that you're living. Does that line up? with what you say are your values, what you say are your beliefs, what you say are the, the things that you are trying to teach your children that you want your children to pick up. So that's especially important for those younger children. That middle group, then the verbal communication becomes more important, but one also has to face that one has less influence and impact day to day on your children. And so there it requires that parents think even more strategically about what is it that I want to communicate uh, with my words and continue to, of course, think about deeds too. Um, and that's where when we talk about values, this is a place where using opportunities, whether it's um, you know, a, a mistake or a bad choice that a child makes, like the beer in the closet, or maybe it's something that they bring home, say, so-and-so did you know, at school and, and this happened, or something that they heard from a teacher or that they saw through social media, using those opportunities then to talk about not just what happened, but also what your parental beliefs and values are around that. Um, so this is something we see going on a lot right now, right? Increasingly over the last couple of years, where parents have found themselves in a somewhat adversarial position with regard to school systems, with regard to what their children are picking up on social media. 
So a lot of parents don't know how to handle that, right? If a child comes home and says, well, we were taught to like think about our white fragility and what are the different ways that we're privileged and we're, we're racist and so forth. Well, most parents are set back on their heels by something like that. They haven't mm -hmm. thought about it much. The same as if a child comes home and says, we're taught to tell everybody in class, you know, what my gender identity is, you know, at age 12. Uh, most parents don't know what to do with that. So it requires thinking beforehand, right? What are your values about some of the most important things in life, whether it's sex, race, uh, money, God, et cetera. And so that when your child comes home and raises those kind of questions, you're able both to explore the topic with them, but also not just uh, be a blank page says, well, I don't know, see, see what you think, but able to articulate values yourself, uh, even if those values might be at odds with what a child is hearing at school or seeing through Twitter, Twitter or Instagram or the like. Um, so that, that middle age, middle time of uh, childhood development, there are less or fewer opportunities for day-to-day -day instruction, either in word or deed. But when those come up, it's important for a parent to be able to articulate his or her values. And then finally, I'll just say on the kind of older uh, children, that's where you often see the benefits of kind of planting the seeds at younger ages, even in teenage years. So when you think your children hate you and they don't listen to you and so forth, you find out, you know, after they're graduated from college or starting life, that actually some of those things that you didn't think were heard at all, you know, that you thought were completely dismissed turned out to have been seeds that were planted and that have, have grown and have had a real impact over time. So having some hope as a parent that is mm -hmm. difficult as it is, as threatening as the culture can be in terms of uh, raising healthy children, that if you're intentional about this, if you think about your words as well as your deeds, you strategically take these opportunities, that more likely than not, as children emerge from their teenage years, and begin to start their own lives, you'll see the fruits of some of those labors and some of those words come out. And that's when you can begin to engage your child more as an adult around these values, around these challenges, and really help think together how they want to face it in their own lives and their own choices, because you've laid the ground for that character. Yeah, the, uh, uh, the I'm sorry, Rachel. Um, go ahead. Uh, one of the things that's you spurred some uh, thoughts in my mind is there's actually verbal, nonverbal communication. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, a lot of times parents will be talking to another parent, either on the phone in the car, when there's a kid in the car and expressing a, uh, a value that they don't necessarily agree with, but they, people don't realize that parents have peer pressure too. And they're trying to fit in, in a social group. And so they will actually express something that is not their value just to, you know, to get along. And, and that is a conflicting thing with, with children. And it happens all the time. I, when I was principal at this school in California, the, the parents would like, get together in the morning, have their coffee and just talk in the courtyard and, you know, just whip themselves into frenzy. And then when you got them individual, the whole, the, the whole, their whole thought process would change mm -hmm. because they didn't want to stand out in their particular social group. The other thing I always, the, the other thing I always uh, would encourage people when they had these conversations with their children was is to do it when the the environment was calm 
and positive because a lot of times they try to do this at when there's a trauma that just happened mm-hmm. and they try to say, well, that's not the way we do it in this family. And, you know, mm-hmm. this is what we believe in blah, blah, blah. Well, that's not really a, a receptive time. Right. And, right. Um, so no. I think these are very valuable conversations and I encourage everybody to read your books because um, uh, I, I, I don't think there's any more in, uh, valuable thing that you can do with your child than to actually communicate with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very wise. Yeah. And, and I'd say on the topic of parental peer pressure, I mean, that's really only gotten worse through social media, right? Because what we see continually, whether it's in the small scale of a local school system, large scale nationwide, a very small number of people who are very agitated about something can create the impression that mm-hmm. there's, a, a, so to speak, a movement or a, a consensus, you know, or public opinion, and others feel cowed by that. And nobody likes to be the person who says, well, wait a minute, you know, I don't see it that way. And so I think for parents, you know, the intestinal fortitude, the sense of courage of standing up for what they believe um, if, if not publicly, at least privately with their children, um, you know, commenting, you know, maybe for an older, more sophisticated child about the difficulty of navigating that, you know, public, uh, uh, persona versus private beliefs, um, and talking that through that, that can be very helpful for older children because they're doing the same thing and trying to navigate, you know, fitting in with also what they believe in, uh, you know, that's, that's so important now. It's interesting that we're talking about having courage and alignment with our value system. And I think I feel that that is a challenge for us all to step into, to know what our beliefs are and our value system, to articulate them so that we can hold ourselves accountable to them, but also to live up to them, especially in those most difficult moments where it is very challenging. And So I see that congruence, that internal congruence being extremely important for each one of us listening. And if we think about ourselves as the founder generation, and we think about ourselves parenting the second generation, then as we have that congruence, we're able to have the conversations about here is our value system. Here is what we believe in. When it's not that crisis moment, and live up to it as well, because you're saying that's the most important part. It's not just that we said our value is loyalty, or we said our value is trustworthiness, or we said our value is generosity or um, charitable giving. Whatever we said our value is, we have to walk it out. And I think that for me, it's very important to make sure that we say what our value system is so that we have a common language to always relate back to. And it's not something that we just expect to get through the environment because if there's not a common language, then each child may perceive differently or they might not necessarily receive what we're intending to convey. So I think it comes down to for, for the listener, for the person who's starting this path to be extremely intentional. And I think that involves our words and then lining up those deeds with what we say our value system is. Sure. I would just add one point to what you're saying there, Rachel, about words. <clears throat> There's a very ancient account of the causes of education or really of, of human 
activities generally come down to three causes that the ancients taught that they were nature, sometimes called chance, um, habit, and then logos, which is just a Greek word that means speech or reason, words. So nature, habit, and words. And I think that's helpful when you're a parent to think about that because each of our children has a nature, right? And it's amazing how even in the same families, the natures of children can be very different. And so when thinking about parenting, it's important to reflect on what is the nature of this child? Really, who is she or he, right? Prone to activity or more passivity, right? Outgoing or more inward focused, um, risk-taking or more cautious and anxious, right? So really understanding the nature of your child is the bedrock for all this. And as I've done this work over the years, you know, been a parent myself and, and the like, work with many parents, more and more I see how the impact of nature is really huge. As much as we can tell ourselves that, well, if I do X and I do Y and so forth, it'll result in A and B and C, nature wins out in the end. So being clear about the nature of your children is key. Then second, as I said, habit. And that's what we've been talking about in terms of behaviors and the example of behaviors, because how do we learn habits? We learn them through imitation, right? Through seeing others do things, we're an imitative species and we, we take enjoyment in imitating one another. And that's how little children especially learn how to navigate the world through imitation. And so being mindful of the behaviors that we then set forth that are going to be imitated is the basis for habit. So when you mention courage, for example, courage is a virtue, it's a, it's a habit, it's a habit with regard to fear. And so if we set an example of being courageous, then those around us, especially our children, begin to imitate that example without any words being spoken, right? They just see and follow. And so habit is also very powerful when it comes to human affairs. Probably the weakest of those three causes, at least for younger children or teenagers, is speech. And yet it's the one that we focus most on because we human beings take great pride in our ability to talk and to think, even though in the grand scheme of things, it's rather a weak tool. So we focus on speech, we can over-focus on speech, but that's of course not to say it isn't important, especially as children get older to be able to talk through some of these topics, make sense of them and help them think through and make their own choices. So I just offer that in terms of mm -hmm. saying that, yes, the words are very important, but let's not overemphasize the words. Let's remember nature and habit as well. That is fascinating. So let's move now from, I know we just have 30 minutes left and I feel like we could talk for hours and, and days on this. So if the key to being able to transfer this way of being to children that is successful, if the key to that is really understanding who they are, but developing my own habits as a parent that are in alignment with the value system that I want them to have. That's a lot of self-awareness. That's a lot of reflection. Where would you suggest starting if maybe you haven't considered this idea yet, that it's how I act to model this character, this training in character that I want my children to catch. If I want them to 
be loyal, if I want them to speak the truth, if I want them to, I mean, I'm, for me, I'm saying, well, if we develop the language of what I want to transfer, then I can figure out and back that up. What are my habits that I'm living in alignment with that or not? Where, where do you suggest starting? Sure. Well, let's, let's focus in on the topic of financial wealth, using that as an example for thinking through this larger topic of how to live and such, <clears throat> both because it's more specific and because it's a topic that's you know, front of mind of many of your listeners. Mm-hmm. So if you think about financial wealth, then what I recommend parents do to get started is to reflect upon their own beliefs regarding financial wealth and its impact on life. And so this goes back to a a way of thinking, one of the benefits actually of modern psychology has been to clarify that the way we feel about things and the way we behave about things is rooted in certain statements we make to ourselves. Sometimes we don't even really notice that we make to ourselves, that themselves are rooted in beliefs that we have, which we may not be clear about at all. So when we come to say financial wealth, how we feel about it, what we do with it, that's going to be rooted in what we say to ourselves about it and how we, what we believe about it. So I'd say to parents, all right, well, what are your money beliefs, right? And there's lots of ways that one can approach this. There are good books that you can get that you know, help you walk through you know, different possible money beliefs. But for instance, <clears throat> you know, do you believe that um, uh, earned wealth is good and unearned wealth is bad, right? that it's just inherently corrupting to receive money without doing something for it. Mm. That's not an uncommon belief, right? But if it is your belief and you're then planning, you're doing all this planning to pass on unearned wealth to your children, then you can't help but feel ambivalent about that, right? You Mm. can't help but feel like, well, I'm actually doing something that I don't think is good, right? I'm passing on unearned wealth, which I believe is corrupting to the people I love most. Right? So if, if one gets clear about a belief like that, then you can ha- have some choices. You have some choices to examine that belief and say, well, is that really true? You know, is unearned wealth always corrupting? Is it always a bad thing? Are there maybe conditions under which it's bad or not bad and such? Um, so, uh, I mean, in general, one can go through uh, money and think about those beliefs. I mean, another very common one is, is really... Now, well, what does money mean to you, right? Is it a source of security? And so what does that really mean? Is it a source of pride, right? Something to, to measure your own worth by, right? Uh, and what does that mean? Is it a source of anxiety, right? Is it something that one continually worries about not having enough, no matter how much one has? So examining those beliefs will then be very important for how you behave with money in your life, right? Does it, does it result in behaviors like spending on visible objects, vehicles, houses, et cetera? Does it result in behaviors like saying that you never have enough or that you've you got to save more um, of underplaying what you have, um, being stealthy or secretive about money? So examining the beliefs helps you become clearer about the behaviors, helps you then have choice in regard to how you behave and what you say about these things, and also gives you an opportunity to, if you want, modify those beliefs through confronting them with other evidence, arguments, and so forth. It gives you more control over your stance towards money 
and hence on how you're going to teach and set an example for your children around money too. So if the goal is raising confident, happy, contributing children who maximize their gifts and do the most good for others and for society, and they're living their own self-actualization, they're fulfilled in every way. If that's the goal, then the way to do that is to start by examining your own beliefs about money, which is a fascinating idea. I mean, it's it's more, it's deeper even than the idea of putting on your own oxygen mask first before putting on the oxygen mask of your child, like they say in the airplane. It's crucial to recognize your own story and your own choice in selecting that story and do that deep internal work of examining not just your actions and the outcomes and the results that you're seeing in your life, but beneath that, what are the beliefs that are driving my words, that are driving my choices and my actions? And you're saying that underlying, almost unconscious part of the way that we live and operate is the key, is the most important thing if we want that long-term outcome. Yes, as parents and as well as individuals ourselves, we're seeking to lead good lives and be happy. And I mean, I'll just give you some examples of how it plays out. It obviously plays out in ways we've already talked about with young children in terms of the example you set for them, whether it's the cars you drive, the houses you live in, the vacations you take, et cetera, how you speak to friends about money uh, or not, um, and so forth. But even as children are older and people might say, hey, I've done a good job. I've, I've raised you know, kids with good character. Um, we haven't lived some sort of extravagant lifestyle. Um, uh, you know, I haven't made money bigger or smaller than, than it should be. Um, I've seen parents who've done a really good job in that way then get to the time when their kids are in their 20s or, or so, and they're setting up trusts, you know, they have significant wealth that they do want to pass on in trusts and the like, and then they get really flummoxed about, well, geez, you know, I'm not sure, like, what, what's this, what are the distribution terms for this trust supposed to be? Here's what the lawyers told me, you know, and it gives me maximum flexibility, absolute discretion, blah, blah, blah. But what, what are we actually supposed to do with this. I mean, we don't just want to put money in a trust and say absolute discretion and it never gets used. I mean, what's the point of it? Um, and so sometimes, you know, I or others will ask them to write a letter of wishes or statement of intent or something like that. And that's then another point for a parent to step back and say, all right, well, things have worked out pretty well, it seems, but, you know, what do I really believe about this money that I'm putting in trust? Um, what do I really believe it's for? And that then forces them, again, to confront their, their thoughts, their opinions about money and its impact in life, because it's not only going to affect their children, but ultimately their grandchildren and beyond. So it's, um, it's both the beginning, you could say, and it's also the end uh, of this work. It's an ongoing piece of work for parents to confront those beliefs and opinions, because you know, to use the image you used, Rachel, there... Our, our feelings and our behaviors are just like the tip of the iceberg, right? The self-statements and then the beliefs are the, the big thing that's largely underwater, and it only pops up here or there, but we have to use those opportunities to reflect what's really going on there. Is that uh, what I want uh, for my life, for my children, for my grandchildren? If not, what steps do I need to take to think that through and modify it? 
So uh, the Wise Council research has done work with international families, correct, uh, Keith? So have you seen differences amongst cultures on how they approach this? Absolutely. And so, um, you know, the research you're referring to, Bruce, is probably our 100-year family study. And so this is a study that's been going on for eight plus years now, uh, where we've interviewed families from around the world who we've selected them based upon their successfully transferring a major family enterprise. So a business of $100 million or more a year um, to at least the third generation of family leadership. Um, so, so all sorts of businesses, some of them are financial families now have sold their legacy companies and have family offices or the like, but about 75% are still involved in some sort of operating business, usually not the legacy business that created the wealth in the first place, but other offshoots, totally new things, et cetera. So in, a, in other words, a lot of money over a long period of time. That's why we call it the 100-year family study, because the average age of the families, the 100 or so families in the study, uh, is over 100 years long that they've been managing wealth or a business together. And why we selected that group and have been doing this study is for the obvious reason of saying, well, what works, right? I mean, what have these families been doing retrospectively that we can see that has allowed them to succeed where most families do not? You know, most families, as pretty much everybody knows, after a generation or maybe two, go their own way, split up the money, split up the business, everybody kind of follows their own path. There's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, that's a, that's a choice too. And people can live fulfilled, successful, happy lives, you know, going their own ways. Sometimes for some families, that's the best way to go, right? For people to chart their own paths. But for whatever reasons, you know, these families... Uh, have found a way to stay together as a family and manage wealth together. And so what we did was we've been looking at these families for the factors that have allowed them to succeed. And we identified a number of factors. I won't go into them right here, Uh, but certainly one of the key factors was a concentration on human capital, you know, specifically on creating um, habits, behaviors, even institutions within the family that focused on raising children who uh, had a sense of purpose in their own lives and an understanding of the family's values, the family's goals, its history, and so forth, uh, and had uh, the ability, the skills and knowledge to be part of the family enterprise if they so chose. Now, I'll just mention you know, one instance of that kind of practice that I think is really important and, and, uh, and very widely applicable to families. And that is that most of these families instituted at some point along the way, a policy or procedure of saying that if you want to work in the family business, A, you have to be qualified, right? So we're not just going to let anybody in. You need to meet the qualification criteria for a non-family member who would want to work at this level or at this part of the business. But then B, even more importantly, since you are a family member, you need to work somewhere else after school for at least three to five years before coming back uh, to the family business. And I think that's a really important um, procedure, one that can be applied to all sorts of different areas of family life, because it basically says, we want you to form your own sense of identity, have a sense of independence, of ability to make it on your own before you choose to come back and work within 
the family enterprise. And so I, I mentioned because of that principle, the principle that for a person to feel good about himself, healthy in his own development, has to have some sense of making it on his own, right? And that's a step that many families with wealth really struggle with. They want to provide their children with a good life. Um, you know, Rachel, before we started, you shared the example of kind of lighting a fire, uh, you know, a campfire. Yes. And, and many parents who have lit the campfire on their own and have a blazing fire, they then want to have their kids have a nice campfire too. So what this principle says is, no, you got to go out into the woods for five years or so, learn how to light your own campfire. We've given you all the tools in terms of a, a secure childhood, good habits, good character, so forth. You're ready to go out into the woods. You know, maybe you'll have some cold nights. <clears throat> maybe you'll run into some scrapes and scratches, but we trust that you're going to be able to light your campfire. And then once you've lit your campfire, you want to come back to this campfire, you know, all the more power to you. So I just mentioned that as one of the practices from that study, which again, I think people intuitively know makes sense, but we've seen it in these families over a century play out in a very powerful way. It helps validate and helps give us some uh, courage in doing something that otherwise can feel really hard, right? As parents to say, you know what? Hey, the best thing that you can do, and this is how we talk about it in the new edition of Complete Family Wealth that's coming out, maybe the best thing you can do now at age 21 or 22, whatever it is, you finish college and such, is take a pause from all this money stuff. Take a pause, go out and find your way, pay for yourself, feel self-sufficient, you know, um, in whatever career, whatever work that is, get that sense of self-sufficiency under your belt. Because without that, you're going to spend the rest of your life wondering, could I have ever made it on my own? And it will yes. gnaw at you. So two it's, things it's, here. Oh, go ahead, Rachel. I'll, I'll follow up after that. Okay. So two things. One, I love that you brought up that fire analogy. The idea behind that came from Andrew Howell, who we've also had on the show and who's written the book Entrusted, this idea of entrusting wealth to the next generation, not just dumping it on them. And the idea, as you were sharing, if we want children to be successful in having their own campfire, we want them to not just take a blazing log from whatever business and wealth we have built. And we just say, well, good luck. They may burn down the forest. Who knows what's going to happen with that blazing log that is not going to be safe in their hands because they don't have the adequate training and skill set to be able to turn that into a fire that's sustainable. And so the idea behind that is if the children then have their own tools and the kindling and the uh, matches or maybe no kindling because they need to go collect it on their own, but they have the skill set and the knowledge to make a fire on their own, then and only then you can give them as much fire, as much uh, money can come to them through family trust and through family wealth because they're capable of managing it. They have the character, they have the discipline, they know how to steward it well. And the amount of money that comes to them then is not going to corrupt them. It's not going to leave them in a state where they just uh, flaunt the whole thing and waste it. They're going to be in a position of managing it well, which I want to use that to bridge over to. And I know we only have about 14 more minutes here. You've written a book called The Voice of the Rising Generation, or you're a co-author again with James Hughes and Susan Masenzio. I don't know if I'm saying her name correctly. Um, 
what is fascinating about this book that I wanted to bring up here is that if you're saying it's crucial for the first or the founding generation who is building and creating this enterprise to be self-aware and understand their our own money beliefs, then we can't just say, well, it's all about the family. It's all about me and my leadership and my legacy that I've created. It now has to be we have to turn the focus and the attention to the rising generation and help them have a voice, help them find themselves. And that to me means we're parenting. We're not just saying, well, do what I do. And it's about me and just follow me. We're really, truly not just saying, get on board with my dreams. We're saying, okay, what are your dreams? What are you good at? What are you skilled at? And how can I help you become the best that you can be? Can you talk a little bit about that need? where that silence comes from and how we can circumnavigate that or how we can prevent it. Sure. Well, let's, in answering that, let's focus on kind of older children here. And because I think we've talked about some of the basics for younger children setting up, you know, good character and the like, but in terms of helping older children who have grown up within a family with significant wealth, or maybe wealth has been built up, you know, during their teenage years or, you know, a little bit later, Um, there are some things that are important. First is to recognize, of course, that significant wealth can have this silencing effect on uh, children who grew up amid it, uh, because it is very powerful. It is very impressive, right? There is that golden rule of he who has the gold rules, right? And and people know that. They don't have to be told that. Um, And so just recognizing, you know, that that challenge exists. So this is where, again, going back to my original comments, there's good parenting, and then there's special considerations that come with significant wealth. This is one of those special special considerations that come with significant wealth, that you have power and that can be silenced. It can be very imposing. Um, it also can be very imposing just by example, right? So I, I work with many families where you have really good adult children, right? They're well-grounded, et cetera, but they are just kind of overwhelmed by the public example of their parents in terms of success, fame, uh, financial wealth, et cetera. And and that can just cause them to feel like, well, who am I to say anything? Who am I to even have dreams? I'm nothing like my dad. Uh, Like he's larger than life, right? So just recognizing again that 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 power exists and it can have those effects is very important as a parent. And secondly, uh, to, to recognize that your hopes for your children as natural as they are for a parent to have hopes for their children, we all do, right? To really recognize that they're your hopes, right? And they're your dreams. They're not necessarily your children's. And the places where I have seen um, children become really silent, really dependent, um, just quiet, right? Don't seem to have any initiative, kind of drifting through life, et cetera. Those are often places where I've seen parents have the highest hopes and demands all the way from young childhood through adolescence and so forth. You know, the parents are always there like, you know, oh, all right, you, you got a B plus. Why wasn't it an A? Um, you know, you're on the, the, the second team versus the first team here in soccer. What, you know, come on, let's get, let's get with it, right? Um, hey, you can do anything. Look at me, right? So recognizing that your hopes for your children are your hopes. They're natural, but they're not who your children are. And holding that back some 
And the way, for example, holding that back that plays out, say, in early 20s is what we were talking about before, not trying to line up your child's career, contacts, the path, et cetera, or, or pushing the child into the family enterprise or business, whatever it is. Um, holding yourself back from that can be very hard, right? For especially for hard charging, very successful parents who want to see their children succeed. Again, what I have seen time and again is that it's the very rare child who has the the aptitude and the I'll call, call it pliability to succeed at being channeled by a parent. Most children break or they become very passive. Uh, under that kind of parental approach. It doesn't lead to successful, it certainly doesn't lead to successful business outcomes. It doesn't lead to successful personal outcomes. So giving your child that space in those odyssey years um, and taking a pause when it comes to the business or comes to the wealth and letting them find their own path and not seeking to support them, give them contacts, direction, et cetera, at every point along the line. It's hard for parents, but it's absolutely essential if that child's going to then eventually come back to the family with a true sense of self identity, strength, and independence. That's a, that's a really, uh, a really deep point to me because as Rachel and I are in the financial world, you know, we're always trying to help people grow their wealth and then pass it along in the most efficient way possible. And we, that's probably, and we're we're actually moving in this direction. This is why we're having you on the the show. You know, we're we're actually questioning what is real wealth, you know, for people, and and uh, real wealth for for one family is is not what real wealth is for another family, and that's okay. I, I, that was one of the early things you said uh, in this podcast was uh, is that what the the family really wants. Um, in, in other words, is, was, is the money what the family really wants? Uh, as we're finishing up here, um, I just want to thank you for being on because your points of view come from a perspective that I don't think a lot of people can really understand. And I'd just like to, you to maybe talk a little bit about how your perspective was actually built. Because as I look at your, as your education background at the University of Chicago, which is a fairly liberal place, and then at Boston, uh, university, which is a fairly conservative place. And then you go down to Vanderbilt, which is everything about the South, as far as, you know, kind of, kind of that class and old money, Southern money, but, but yet you're, you, there's certain traditions that you have to, how did that all of your background formulate what you try to, um, espouse today? Well, that's a big question, Bruce, for uh, for a couple of minutes here. Um, but I guess I would say a, a couple of things. You know, first, my own um, education was through the public schools of Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is a pretty um, uh, firmly middle class at best um, place. Uh, but we had we're very fortunate because we had a, a, a city of largely second, third immigrant families. Uh, second, third generation immigrant families. And so people were very serious about education at that time. And I was very fortunate in that one of my principal teachers was a Jesuit priest who was teaching in the public school system. And so I had the opportunity to study the classical languages very early. And I'd say for parents, you know, one thing that you can do, which kind of fights against the current tide, is make sure your children study 
uh, other languages, right? You know, this could be foreign languages that are in use now. I have a particular penchant for classical languages because they're hard. So it, it takes a lot to, to learn them. And learning them, even at a basic level, opens up a whole world for your child uh, of the greatest you know, things that have been thought or said. So that, that was kind of the foundation uh, for me. And then the rest of my education really followed from that in terms of pursuing you know, what used to be called a liberal education, not liberal in the sense of left you know, or, or the like, but rather liberal in the sense of the education proper to free people right? Mm -hmm. So to free human beings, what do you need to learn in order to use your freedom well, right? And so when I think about my work with families, it's really been an extension of that, right? So many people come to this field through, you know, the financial background, investments, accounting, insurance, and so forth. And they realize, as you were saying, well, there's, there's a lot more to wealth than the balance sheet or the income statement. Many people come to this field through psychology, and really looking at the special considerations that wealth brings uh, to individual psychology, to family work, et cetera. Others come through law, right, and estate planning and such, and recognizing you can have the most wonderful plans, but if you aren't having, helping people communicate and, and think themselves about what's important, then those plans can be worse than useless. I came to it through, as I said, liberal education. So the question of how do you use your freedom well as a human being? And wealth is a tool in using your freedom, but it's only a tool. It needs direction from things that are larger and more important than wealth. So that's just a little bit about sort of how, how I got into it. And, it. and it translates into the how I and my colleagues at Wise Council Research do our work. I mean, we've tried to be very intentional in creating a process where families come together and they really measure through this family balance sheet, this, this um, assessment that we created, they measured their qualitative capital. So they're able to actually see where are we strong? <clears throat> where, where have we built up capital? Where do we have deficiencies? And then on that basis, we can create a plan just as an investment advisor would create a plan around a portfolio, filling in gaps and, and rebalancing and so forth. So to here, we create a plan for right, how do you build specific elements of your qualitative capital over the next six months, over the next year, over the next two years, and then build in a process for monitoring and assessing that growth over time? Or, and as the family changes, as new people join, as others pass away, how does the qualitative capital in the family change and how, to, how you have to respond to that? So that idea of looking at wealth as qualitative capital looking at people as agents who really have choices about these things, using measurement as a way both to assess how we're doing right now, and then also how have actions and learning that we've undertaken created an impact. That's what we really seek to do, both to grow the qualitative capital of the individuals in the family, healthy individuals, and then translate that into healthy families too. Thank you. Thank you. That's Fascinating. And thank you for sharing your work as well. I've continually been astounded um, just by the depth and the true help that you provide to families who have these big goals and who have, frankly, just kids that they love, that they want to see the best for. And parenting is a complex uh, challenge that presents itself because there are so many pieces that are all contingent upon each other. And it's not something as simple as baking a cake. It's not something even just as complicated as having multiple steps. It's 
this whole organism and this whole um, like a moving mobile of all of these parts that are working together. And ultimately, we want that strong relationship with kids and we want to build a family that is more than just a family of money. I love how you said um, in that family study, that 100, 100 international families with family enterprise of over 100 million that have transitioned that over 100 years or more. In your book, you talk in uh, The Voice of the Rising Generation, you said almost all of these families decided quite consciously at some point, usually in the second or third generation, to move from focusing on building a great business and instead focus on building a great family. It begins with a conscious recognition that the family's true wealth is its human capital, not its financial assets. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really powerful note to close on. So Keith, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for being here and sharing your wisdom and your experience with us on the Money Advantage podcast. And we just are tremendously grateful for, for you sharing with us here. Well, you're welcome. It's always a pleasure to speak with both of you. And I hope your listeners find you know, some things from this that they can apply to their own lives and, and maybe reflect on and, and plant those seeds you know, for years to come. So thank you. Excellent. And if you're listening today, remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.